This is the State of Things from the American Tobacco Historic District. I'm Frank Stacio, the soon-to-be-retired host of this show, and I'm spending the last few days in this role listening back to some of the more memorable conversations I've had over the last 15 years. Today, we replay a conversation with Bree Newsom, who gained national attention five years ago when she scaled a flagpole at the South Carolina State House. She climbed to the top and removed the Confederate flag. She did this in the wake of killing nine African-Americans at the Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina. Her activism helped further a conversation about whether the Confederate flag should continue to fly at the Statehouse. Weeks after she took down the flag, the South Carolina legislature voted to remove it from the state capitol. Taking down the Confederate flag has been one of Bree Newsom's many acts of civil disobedience and activism over the years. She lives in Charlotte and has worked with many social justice groups in the area. Her personal roots stem from the creative arts. She was born in Durham but grew up in Columbia, Maryland. She wanted to be a composer at a young age. She switched to filmmaking and studied at NYU's film program and eventually became a community organizer in Charlotte. I remember this conversation well for the way Brie was able to chart her own growth as an artist and activist and understand the unique and at the same time inseparable roles each play in the development of an individual and a community. She told me about growing up in Columbia, Maryland. It's a planned community that was meant to be diverse. Growing up in Columbia was really interesting. Like you mentioned, this was a a planned community. It was developed in the 70s. And in a lot of ways, it is an example of a lot of liberal ideas. And there were a lot of things that were great, I would say. I think overall, I would, you know, say I had a, a, a great childhood and a great experience growing up. Um, Columbia was very diverse, is very diverse. Um, I grew up in, you know, a school system that was very diverse. We had mixed income housing when I was growing up, and that was key because it allowed us to have neighborhood schools that were economically and racially diverse. I mean, if you look at uh, where I am here in Charlotte, for instance, you know, one of the major issues we have here is with busing and how do we create um, diverse schools that exist within highly segregated neighborhoods. So there were a lot of things that I got to witness growing up in Columbia in terms of, you know, how how we can have solutions to create a more um, equitable society, basically. Um, At the same time, I saw that within that there is still the stubborn you know, persistence of of racism. There's certain, you know, changes that you can make to systems and, you know, systems are definitely a part of the issue. But in terms of, you know, human relations and, and how we get along in that way, what I saw was that there were other ways that segregation manifested in the school. So, um, for instance, when I was in elementary school, that was when uh, the school system introduced the gifted and talented program, which, you know, that, that kind of program has different terms in other school systems, but it's essentially for the students who they have identified as advanced. And these are the students that, you know, uh, basically get placed on the track for college, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it. And, you know, from that point on, I was pretty much the only or maybe one of two um, black children or children of color in my classes going forward. And, you know, my mother, who was an educator in the school system, she really had to fight um, to even get me placed in the program. And so I think, you know, having that awareness of things as I was growing up, that definitely made an impact um, just on how I viewed a lot of things, especially issues of equality around education. You've also said that in that community, there was a certain kind of liberal racism that you observed and experienced through the school system. Tell us how that works and how you experienced it. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I think the, the way I kind of look at it, and by the way, this term liberal racism, I, I, I kind of see that as something that I experienced that I didn't have language for until I got to NYU and I took a course that was called Race and Ethnicity. And that was like the first time that I was introduced to this concept of liberal racism or uh, the other common term for it is colorblind racism. And this is kind of the idea that the way that we deal with racism is to, you know, kind of act like it doesn't exist. You know, we don't see color. We don't see these things. Um, in the community I grew up in, there was a lot of emphasis placed on multiculturalism. Um, I remember we had, uh, for instance, in middle school, something called the Salad Bowl Day. And this was all about us you know, celebrating the different cultures that we came from. Um, at the same time, there's just this larger reality of systemic racism that exists, and it's just simply not as simple as saying we don't see color. And I think, you know, the way that I would define kind of the traditional overt racism, overt racism, you know, tends to say uh, black people are inferior, period, and so therefore we, you know, they, they will never be able to compete in education or these other things. Liberal racism I see as in some ways almost more insidious because I feel like what it implies is that, uh, you know, uh, non-white people are inferior. And so therefore we have to make these, you know, certain accommodations to, um, to so that they can have a chance in the school system. That was kind of what I witnessed. I didn't mm. see a lot of genuine belief in uh, the future of poor children, um, black children and children from homes where their parents didn't speak English. And again, I think because as I was growing up, a lot of the work that my mother did in the school system was advocating on behalf of those children, I'm sure that that gave me, you know, a, a kind of keen awareness of that. Well, tell us more about your parents and the way in which they sharpened your awareness to these things. You talked about your mother, your father, also the dean of Howard Divinity School. Did they play a part in shaping your political understanding of what was happening to you? Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure they did. Um, I don't even think I was as aware of how much, you know, an influence that had on me until recently when I really started thinking about, OK, how did I, you know, people ask me, well, how did you become an activist? And I think back on it because it wasn't so much a, you know, a conscious decision that I made so much as, you know, a, a just a, a a call of conscience, really, um, that I felt. But, you know, when I look back on it growing up, as you said, yeah, my father was dean of Howard Divinity School. He was also um, the interim pastor at the church um, where I grew up there in Columbia, Maryland, St. John Baptist. And so a lot of the conversations at our dinner table were about these issues, um, you know, religion, theology, um, really talking about freedom from a theological perspective, um, really talking about education, again, from the perspective of justice and and I think just kind of the tradition of my family and, and just the tradition that I was raised in, there was always great emphasis placed on education, probably because, you know, obviously both my parents are educators. I come from a family with a lot of teachers, um, but a lot of emphasis placed on education as being key to how we, you know, advance, particularly as black people, just and, and, and just all these discussions over the struggle for education from, you know, Brown v. Board to uh, today. And um, something else I really think about looking back on how I was raised, I love that my parents really encouraged me to think about these things from a very young age um, and to speak at the dinner table. You know, my parents would be having these very sophisticated conversations about these issues and they would, you know, invite me even from my, you know, 10 year old perspective to kind of share what I was seeing and thinking as well. Meanwhile, you're spending summers, uh, many of them with your grandmother in Charlotte. And I wonder about those visits and um um, you know, of the, any of the contrast that you might have experienced spending summer in Charlotte and then going back to Columbia, Maryland. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean that. So, so my, you know, my experience of Charlotte was certainly, um, you know, through the lens of a child and uh, through the lens of summertime, which uh, obviously is going to make it a kind of positive um, memory and experience. Um, and I'm I'm learning more about Charlotte and about North Carolina as an adult now. But growing up with my grandmother, I mean, that definitely had a profound impact on me. She would come and stay uh, with me during the school year and kind of help out because my parents, you know, were very busy with work and things like that. And then during the summer, my sister and I would go um, and visit with her in Charlotte. And, you know, my grandmother, she was born in South Carolina in 1926. And spending a lot of time around her and, you know, learning about her life and learning about her experiences, that definitely had a profound impact on me as well, because I was I was aware, you know, even at a young age that I was the first generation in my family to attend integrated schools. Um, I was just the first generation in my family to do a lot of things. And uh, that definitely played into my awareness and my understanding, um, you know, with my activism as well. You know, my, my decision to climb the pole and remove the flag, to remove the Confederate flag at the state house, it was in response to what happened in Charleston, but it was also deeply personal for me as well, Be, you know, knowing um, my connection to South Carolina, knowing the names of my ancestors who were enslaved there. That activism, as you say, grew and matured as you got older, but early on you were thinking about music and writing music at a very early age. Am I right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I can't even really tell you when I started with music. Um, I, I th- Well, first of all, music runs in my family. One of my cousins is McCoy Tyner, the jazz musician. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, my grandfather really could have been a professional musician. He chose not to be, but he could, you know, hear something one time, sit down to the piano and play it. So that's something that kind of runs in my family to begin with. But then I think also as an infant, my mother played a lot of music when, uh, you know, I was a baby. And she said whenever she would turn it off, I would start crying, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'd start crying and saying, tune, tune, you know, for her to, to play it yeah. again. So I can't even really pinpoint um, when music began for me. That's kind of just been a constant in my life. And you said that uh, Disney movies were an inspiration for you as a young girl. One movie that stood out was The Lion King. Oh, absolutely. Like, I don't I don't think you can even... Uh, you can't downplay, I think, the revival of the Disney musical in the 90s. Um, that was my introduction to, to storytelling. I used to sit. <laughs> I used to sit with my Disney videos and actually... Uh, analyze like how why why is this story so great how does this mm. build i would sit and uh and watch the lion king i mean first of all when i saw it in movie theaters i just remember being nine years old seeing that film and just the opening sequence at the end of that sequence i was like wow that's what i want to do i want to recreate for other people this feeling that i'm feeling right now and i would sit and i would study how how Disney made what they did, like how they made it work. Um, And then I got to college and that was like the first coursework. And I was like, wow, cool. (laughs) I was like, I didn't realize that this was kind of, you know, how how you become a filmmaker. My guest is Bree Newsom. She's a community organizer and activist in Charlotte and one of the many people who have inspired me in my years as host of this program. Just ahead, we continue to talk with Bree about her creative roots and her shift to activism. You're listening to The State of Things from North Carolina Public Radio, a broadcast service of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Stay with us.
This is the State of Things broadcasting from the American Tobacco Historic District. I'm Frank Stacio. My guest is Bree Newsom. She's a community organizer in Charlotte. Her activism includes scaling a flagpole at the South Carolina State House and removing the Confederate flag in the summer of 2015. And it's one of the conversations I wanted to replay as I prepare to retire from WUNC. In preparing for Bree, I learned that she showed an interest in filmmaking at the age of nine as she found herself analyzing the power of Disney's Lion King. I asked her what she noticed about that movie. So in retrospect, I think uh, if we're just talking specifically about The Lion King, yeah. I mean, it is, it's classic storytelling in so many ways. Uh, I mean, it, it's arguably Hamlet as well, but um, just, you know, the introduction of the protagonist, uh, things I would identify, for instance, in like the Disney musical specifically that I <laughs> found compelling as a child, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, the introduction of the protagonist, the key song where they, you know, name what their aspiration is. Uh, then you have the villain. Uh, you know who who is the threat to their uh, the the protagonist's aspiration, and then something happens that that shifts everything. That's the end of Act One, and then you know the beginning of the um, the next adventure. If you're looking at the Little Mermaid, that would be you know when she transforms into being a human and goes to land, and then you know and then there's this obvious climax of um, the piece. Something else I would identify in Disney musicals was you know the faithful sidekick character, and so I would just you know I'd just be kind of sitting there looking at um, um, these films, and I think as as I was a child, the key ones that I would look at were uh, probably like, you know, The Little Mermaid, uh, Lion King, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin. Those were, you know, I was a 90s child. And those right. are the ones that kind of came out and, in my era. Well, this is certainly, you know, talks about storytelling, filmmaking, and we'll talk a little bit about your, your filmmaking career as you began at NYU, but, it, but also political storytelling. I mean, this is how politics works. It's not as though when we talk about the theater of politics, we're talking about a veneer or something that's other than I mean, isn't that how politics works? We use these tropes, these these frames, these frameworks for understanding who we are and what our aspirations are and how they work over and against a system that may or may not be serving them. Oh, absolutely. I think that, I mean, storytelling and narrative, uh, maybe even more so narrative is a better term. I, I mean, that's that's central to everything in terms of how we understand ourselves. So even our, our understanding of who we are as individuals in this moment is based on our personal narrative of our lives, right? Who we are as a nation right now is based on the narrative that we understand about how we got to where we are at the present moment as a nation. Um, history is narrative. Um, even the controversy over the Confederate flag has a lot to do with competing historical narratives. So, I mean, you know, of course I'm an artist, so it's easy. I made this choice to be an artist. I So, of course, I'm going to give utmost importance to things like narrative and storytelling because that's what I do. But, uh, but I, I genuinely believe that at the same time, I don't think that you can um, be dismissive in any way of the power of, of narrative, not only in politics, but I mean, it plays a major part in um, the work I do as an organizer and as an activist. A lot of times the communities that um, we are dealing with and when we're talking about oppression, we're talking about communities that have not been able to tell their own narratives. Um, you know, something else that, that, that jumps to my mind, I mean, when we're talking about the history of slavery or whether it's the Holocaust, a lot of the struggle is over narrative. It's over how do we tell, how do we remember, how do we make sure that narratives that have been suppressed 
are, uh, are you know, remembered. Well, and it's also important to understand the nature of the conflict then and controversy when these uh, narratives come into conflict, why there might be uh, a pretty bitter struggle from that moment forward. If your narrative as a white person is, we came to these shores, we worked very, very hard, we overcame adversity, and, and, and we struggled and fought and died for freedom, for our freedom to express ourselves— that's one story. And then you think, well, everybody who comes here should do the same thing and gain the same benefits. If you leave out the fact that a lot of that freedom was taken away from people who helped build your financial systems, who helped build financial networks that you're now built on, and without that free labor, these banks wouldn't be here today, or certainly not in the condition that they're in. If you leave out that part of the narrative, then, then frankly, you're not telling yourself the whole truth. And for the people on, who donated that service and never got repaid, their view of where they live is entirely different. Oh yeah, absolutely, and and it's important to keep in mind they didn't they didn't really didn't donate, donate to service didn't either, donate. you know, because donate <laughs> donate kind of implies that this is something that was done, you know, voluntarily. That's right. That's right. Um, yeah, I mean, I I mean it, it's powerful. I mean, even just in the so like the past year, for instance, I have uh, been doing a lot of traveling and speaking and um, you know educating folks on you know the modern struggle, drawing the connections to civil rights history, and and you know really going to to particularly to places around the nation that are, you know, more removed from South Carolina and for whom, like, you know, the the flag action in 2015 was maybe their first introduction to this controversy over the Confederate flag in Columbia, South Carolina. But even as I'm traveling and, like, lifting up this narrative, you know, I've encountered other narratives that I didn't know about. Like, for instance, I went up to um, Tacoma, Washington and, and really learned about um, the struggle of the Chinese immigrants there who, you know, they helped build the railroads and, and these major things. And then after they did that, they were pretty much um, pushed out of town. And there's, you know, one monument that's there to tell their story, to lift up that narrative, you know. So, uh, so I mean, it's it's something that even as I uh, fight to lift up the, the narrative of my own culture and my own history, I become just more aware of all of these narratives that exist in America in this way. That political awareness has obviously grown in your case, but when you went to film school at NYU, what were your aspirations at that time and how how much did politics play a part in what you saw yourself doing in the future? I don't think I had any kind of conscious, uh, you know, sense that, okay, politics are going to be central um, to what I do in any way, really. I I think I've always seen um, being political, being politically aware more as something that is done as a responsible citizen, you know, um, just because I think that was in a lot of ways the sense that my, not just my parents, but my extended family kind of um, engendered in me was this, just this sense of how you uh, exist in the world as a responsible citizen and in addition to education that includes, you know, being politically active and having this awareness, particularly because, you know, you come from a people who had to fight to have these rights that you have. Um, But that said, I I was really just focused on being a filmmaker. I mean, my my greatest dilemma that I was (laughs) kind of debating between was do I want to be a film composer or, you know, am I more interested in being a writer director because I just have so many interests. I just, you know, really love being creative. Your senior year, you completed a short film called Wake, which takes place in the rural South, and the main character focuses on finding a romantic partner. Tell us more about that film and and the message behind that. Yeah, so I, I think one thing that's important to understand, it's like when you reach your, you know, the point of doing your senior thesis film, um, especially at NYU, one of the 
you know, factors or realities that you're facing is you don't know necessarily when you might get the chance to make another film. You know, when are you going to have access to these resources? How long will it be between now and when and if you make your first feature film? And so, you know, um, recognizing that I just it was very important for me to make the film that I wanted to make. And um, the, the the films that we made as a part of our senior thesis are, are also tied to a major film festival that's held at NYU. So, you know, there was a lot of a lot of focus on, you know, making a film that could be competitive, that could win awards. But at the end of the day, um, I really just wanted, it was important for me to tell the story that I wanted to tell. And so for that, I really wanted to reach back to some of my cultural roots in eastern North Carolina, um, and I love the penchant for these kind of fantastic, um, somewhat macabre kind of tall tales that I, you know, I grew up hearing as, um, as a child. One of the stories that I grew up hearing was about um, someone who my my great aunt told me she had memories of attending a wake. And at that time, they would hold the wakes in the home. And at this particular wake, they had glass over the casket so you could, you know, see the body through. Now, to understand this story, she's beginning this story by telling me about how this man was just so mean. There's this mean, awful man, and, and we, you know, we're pretty sure that somebody poisoned him. And then she goes on to talk about this wake. You know, we're sitting at the wake, and we looked down at the glass, and we think we saw breath on the glass. I'm pretty sure there was breath on the glass, but nobody said anything because that's how mean he was. And I just remember, like, as a child, like, to me, the, you know, her focus is on how mean he was. To me, I'm just, like, shocked, fascinated, horrified by this concept of this right, right. Good, Christian, good Christian folk praying, <laughs> right. praying, <laughs> praying their loved right. ones to the next world, yeah. And that just that just always just kind of haunted my imagination yeah. from the time I was a child. And I also just love I love a good horror story, yeah. a good ghost tale. Well, this one does. This has a conjurer or conjuring is part of the uh, the the plot in this particular film, yours, your film Wake. And I want to play actually a short clip, a scene where the main character, Charmaine, is arguing with the character called the demon about the man the demon has conjured for Charmaine. Well, what's the matter? <laughs> one ain't enough for you. Right. Well, that's an opinion, but the fact is, you made him. He's yours. No, he ain't what I wanted. Was he handsome? With big green eyes? Did he dress real nice? And his new eye too? Did he do like the Bible says? And really get to know you? He is, man. <laughs> Most of them ain't. And he sure doesn't come with his mama. He is a monster! You the one chose to conjure among the damned. You went to the eye doctor to get your teeth fixed. Don't like the results. So what you want now? Well, I don't want him. That's a clip from the short film called Wake by Bree Newsom. She is my guest today and now a community organizer and activist in Charlotte. Bree, how did making that short film influence your pursuit? What were you thinking at that moment? You made the film. It got some attention, in fact. And um, so were you thinking, oh, here it is. This is what I'm going to do. Um, in terms of being a filmmaker, yes. But I, I think also 
I don't know. I, I've always had this sense of myself as an artist. You know, this is, again, something that I've always done, <laughs> you know. And so for me, the question has never been so much what am I going to do so much as how am I going to, you know, support myself doing what it is that I do um, or, you know, how might I go about doing what I do? Because I was I was making films and telling stories and putting things together from the time I was a child. I was, you know, making plays and putting them on at my school um, as early as like fifth grade. So, um, yeah. So I, I, I think, you know, I this was like a, a film I wanted to make. It was awesome that it was really well received. It won a bunch of awards. Um, I went to the Cannes Film Festival with it. It's played on TV. I mean, it's 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 been pretty amazing because, as I said, you know, I was like, I'm going to tell the story I want to tell. I have no idea you know, how it's going to be received. And it's been interesting, too, seeing how it, you know, plays in different different regions. In, in the South, they tend to bust out laughing at, you know, parts of that parts of that scene. Um, I think just because they kind of get some of that macabre humor uh, that we have in the way that we tell stories down here. And then in other places, they, you know, seem to find it more truly frightening. So it's just, it's just been really interesting to see. Well, all that said, you, you put film on pause after college and became the artist in residence uh, at the ad agency Sachi and Sachi, and I wonder about that sort of you and the advertising industry and how what that did to uh, your understanding of, of your creative work. Yeah, I think so. The, the stint at Sachi and Sachi was pretty cool, and and in addition to um, being you know present at the ad agency and and you know learning the in and outs of advertising, learning more about what. Um, possibilities were, you know, available as a creative artist in um, advertising. I also um, served as a guest artist teacher in the Bronx at a, at a, a film program for high school students up there. And that was something that was arranged um, with Sachi and Sachi. So that was a pretty, you know, it was a pretty awesome um, experience just as I was, you know, trying to carve out um you know, I am a filmmaker. This is something that I do. But again, what how how do I want to take these skills and, you know, transfer that into my career and into my work? And, you know, education was a possibility and um, advertising industry was was uh, was also a possibility. But even as I was there, <laughs> um, honestly, I hope I hope Sachi won't have a problem with this. But a lot of folks were encouraging me, um, you know, maybe not to go into advertising, but to really kind of kind of carve out you know my my own path for myself I guess and I guess that's ultimately the decision I ended up making um, while I was up there at Saatchi I did um, a political satirical music video about the uh, presidential campaign of 2012 and um, and I think that maybe through that process that just kind of made me more aware I can't say that I made a conscious decision at that point that politics was going to be um, more central to what I was doing but it was definitely getting there and you have to remember this is this is shortly after um, Trayvon Martin had been murdered so this is like during you know the buildup um, in that case um, we this is right when tensions were really starting to build in North Carolina to where they are right now with the attack on voting rights and things like that so I think I think that whole period of time did mark this um, this point where I am kind of making a decision about uh, how do I take what I've learned, how do I take these skills and then use them, I guess. Well, let's take a snapshot of that moment because the uh, video you're talking about is called Shake It Like an Etch-A-Sketch 2012, and it's a reference to uh, a phrase from Mitt Romney's campaign and, and about shaking up Washington, uh, the familiar refrain even back then. Um, and so here's a clip from the music video. He's going hard to the right, extreme, out of sight, campaign, so insane, Herman Cain couldn't hang, super pack got his back, and they ready to attack. 
He don't need facts, he got money for that. He don't need a plan, cause he's the man. Been running this land since it all began. Gotta have a quarter bill just to play this league. That's Bill with they beat, and they got DC. Yeah, they got the country club, yeah, they got the Ivy League. Yeah, they got the tax break, yeah, the real OGs at the GOP. And this is how they live it. 1950, get your ass back in the kitchen. 1940s, get your ass back in the kitchen. 1930s, I don't think you listen, they the GOP. And this is how they live it. 1950, get your ass back in the kitchen. 1940, get your ass back in the kitchen. 1930s, they hope you didn't listen. He's got more presidents than the U.S. Mint. He represents the Mormons and the 1%. If you don't like what he's saying, then it's not what he meant. Now shake it like an etch sketch and vote for Mitt. Shake it like an etch sketch. 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 Clip from the song Shake It Like an Etch-A-Sketch by Bree Newsom, my guest today, and of course him shaking it uh, and also rinsing out his far-right primary uh, <laughs> persona to become a more palatable candidate for the general election, uh, the other reference there. But again, as you said, you weren't really sort of, if politics wasn't in the forefront of your mind, but that's a very deliberately political film. I mean, it's interesting. And I wonder what it's like for you now, listening to that and watching it, if you can. It's almost... I don't know. It's it's uh, for lack of a better word, it's almost freaky listening to it in a way because so the thing I think it's important to understand like at that time as you said, you know, there was a state Mitt, Mitt Romney has this track record and especially because of his father of being, you know, the the more kind of moderate conservative. And you know what had happened during the primary at that time was he had made this sharp turn to the right and then you know there was this concept that they were just going to shake it like an etch-a-sketch and you know switch it up for the general election um but in that process you know it it just inflames all of this homophobia and xenophobia and racism and classism and just all of these things to drive up the base now at the time you know for whatever reason you know at the time that uh, myself and the folks who worked on me with this video came up with the idea it seemed like you know you Unique to do this Mitt Romney video. There ended up being a slew of Mitt Romney rap videos that were, you know, pointing out some of the similar uh, kind of issues that I was lifting up. Though I, though I was really trying to raise the alarm um, about, you know, just the the bigotry, the overt bigotry that I felt the GOP was using in terms of uh, of you know trying to run its campaign and and just employing this Southern strategy that has been in place for some time. And I think part of what made me want to. Um, I guess what made me particularly, I guess, offended in some way about Mitt Romney's doing that was because it just seems so particularly cynical, especially given the fact that, you know, his father famously um, refused to engage in such in such tactics. Um, now, listening, listening to it, it's uh, it, it's kind of like this almost haunting presaging of, you know, Trumpism and 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 just the things that we are dealing with today. You know, I remember um, I shared that video um, um, at one of the colleges that I visited and someone asked me, you know, well, are you thinking about doing a parody about Trump? And I was like, I don't know how I could do. I can't do a parody about Trump. I don't know uh, uh, how I, I could do that. My guest is Bree Newsom, a community organizer and activist in Charlotte. Just ahead, we continue to talk with Bree about her activism and removing the Confederate flag. This is The State of Things. I'm Frank Stacio, and my guest is Bree Newsom. She's a community organizer in Charlotte. Her activism includes scaling a flagpole at the South Carolina State House and removing the Confederate flag in the summer of 2015. We first aired this program in January of 2017. Bree explained how activism became her focus after moving to North Carolina and participating in the Moral Monday protests. 
The first time I was arrested, which is a (laughs) phrase I never thought I would be saying one day, but um, yeah, so the first time I was arrested was was my involvement with uh, the Moral Monday protest. So after I was, you know, in New York, I had completed uh, my residency at Saatchi and Saatchi, and I returned to North Carolina. And and at that point, it was just really a matter of me trying to decide, okay, you know, what do I want to do next? Um, I was really interested in doing more with music again, and so I was in Raleigh at the time, um, you know, working on trying to connect with a band, maybe find, finding some musicians to play with. And um, a friend of mine who had already been doing some work with NAACP for a while, you know, said, you should come out to the Moral Monday protest. And to be honest with you, I was, you know, again, I said I was a politically conscious person, but a lot of my political awareness and focus had always been on national politics. And so this was when I was really plugging in and, and focusing more on what was happening in North Carolina. And part of what um, was such a shock to me was I went out to the protest on Monday um, over voting rights. And at that point, you know, the Republicans were still putting it forward as this issue of voter ID and how students could no longer use their student ID to vote, which was a major issue. Um, but what but what really, you know, put me at the point of saying, OK, I have to show up and, and do more was just seeing these young folks, especially people my age, who several of them had already been arrested um, protesting over this issue at the Capitol And then overnight between that Monday and that Tuesday, the bill went from the House to the Senate and they added um, like 50 more pages to this bill. And that's when they included things like ending early voting, ending Sunday voting, um, things that you can now bring a gun into the polling place, uh, you know, doing away with straight party ticket voting. It was just all of these things that were clearly aimed at targeting um, black voters as you know, the the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals has since confirmed. Um, and so at that time, you know, when I looked at all these these folks who had already been making the sacrifice, to me, it was just kind of this personal question of, you know, well, who am I to to not do something at this at this moment when I'm in a position where I could volunteer to go sit in? And so um, we went uh, the next day, Wednesday, uh, we went and we sat in the um, Senate and listened to, um, you know, the, the debates, which were ridiculous. We don't even I don't even know if we have time to go into all the specifics of why it was ridiculous. And um, and then we marched over to Tom Tillis's office. You know, at that point, he was um, in, in the North Carolina Senate or in the North Carolina House. And um, and we basically just sat down and we refused to move until he came and talked to us about why they were pursuing this bill. And of course, he never came and we were um, arrested. But it, it was really important because at that time, um, you know, there, the, the Supreme Court had just struck down key parts of the Voting Rights Act, and you had states throughout the South and including like Ohio that had started passing all of these, uh, you know, voter suppression methods. And at that time, the attorney general, you know, had uh, filed a lawsuit against the state of Texas. But what was happening in North Carolina was largely being ignored. And so we just felt that it was really important to do that and really draw attention to what was happening in North Carolina because it was so egregious. And I just think that a lot of folks just never assumed that such a thing could happen in North Carolina because North Carolina has this you know, kind of perception as being the more progressive, you know, state of the South. So what about, and, and, and you, you make that decision, obviously these are, you know, you're, you're observing this scene, you're coming to these conclusions as many other people have, but again, the decision to take part in it, um, your sense of, well, I have a sense of, if they're going to do it, I, I should commit some of myself. So that's your personal commitment to it. Did you see it as, as a, a kind of activism that's going to produce a result? 
Yes, I would say yes. Um, because again, at that at that point in time, I felt that it was essential for us to do this sit in in Tom Tillis's office because. Um, at, at that point, like if you go back and read the headlines that were happening at that point, that was like July 2013. There was not focus on uh, on on the the attack on voting rights in North Carolina. Be- again, because up until that Monday, the the legislator had been. Um, you know, advertising it as only being about ID. And if you if you look at what has happened with the legislators since then, there's a there's a pattern of that, of these bills kind of being put forth as one thing, even if it's, you know, you can look at HB2, for instance. HB2, they like to call it, uh, you know, the bathroom bill and make it seem as though it's focused on this one issue. But if you actually read HB2, you see they have folded a lot of other um, anti-civil rights measures in there. So there, there's a track record of this. So in 2013, um, I know in terms of my decision to to participate in the Senate, I felt that it was necessary to uh, to draw attention to what was happening there. And I think we succeeded in that. What about what about the Confederate flag? Tell us now about moving to uh, South Carolina and the decision to climb the flagpole. Tell us what led up to that. Yeah, I would say that was kind of a similar uh, decision-making process for me because I, I had already decided, you know, I, I, I wasn't really interested in being um, chronically arrested as an activist. And I don't, I don't, I don't think there's necessarily anything um, wrong with that. I think, you know, and I've, I've recently been reading John Lewis's um, biography. I can't even tell you how many times he has been um, arrested. So I think there's, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I just personally was focused on, okay, how, how can I help organize my community? How can I help um, get us to a point where we are no longer susceptible to these, you know, th- these, these things that are impacting us? And that's kind of where my head was at. But um, when, when the Charleston massacre happened, and even Prior to that, I knew that like if there if an opportunity came to remove the Confederate flag in South Carolina, that's something I would go back to jail for that. I already knew I had already had prior conversations like that um, with activists that I work with here in Charlotte. And so when when the massacre happened and I, I think part of what I found so particularly offensive just about the, the way that whole thing played out was not just that the focus became on the became the flag, the Confederate flag in South Carolina, but just the 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 absolute refusal um, to to compromise on it in in any kind of way. I think for me the breaking point was when the United States and the state flag of South Carolina were lowered to half staff, and the Confederate flag was still flying full mast, even as they were burying the victims of the massacre. And the justification for that was, well, we can't remove this flag because of this law that put it in place back in 1961. Well, if we look at 1961. Um, Um, We know what was happening in 1961. This flag was raised by an all-white legislature at a time when sit-ins were starting to happen across the state of of South Carolina, particularly in Rock Hill. And this flag was raised just as many others across the South were raised at that time as a statement against civil rights. And so to even say at that moment, to me in 2015, after this massacre, this racist massacre has just happened at this church, that we can't even lower the flag to half mass for a day because of this racist law in 1961 was just unacceptable. Um, and, And I just... Yeah, it, it was just it was just simply unacceptable to me. And there was just no way that if an opportunity came for me to personally um, scale the pole and, and remove the flag that I couldn't do that, um, not only in honor of those who were slain at Mother Emanuel, but in honor of the memory of my ancestors who were enslaved in South Carolina. So you can understand the outrage, but it wasn't uh, done. This act was not done in a rage. You prepared for it and trained for it. Tell us about the preparation that went into this. 
Yes. So it was uh, that Saturday, the 27th, um, when we removed the flag, it was only a few days before. I think it was actually a Tuesday evening where um, I had a meeting with other activists about how, you know, we could do this. And there was um, another activist from Charlotte who had actually gone down to South Carolina, looked at the looked at the poll because, you know, again, there was just this practical issue of, well, how could we get it down? How could we um, possibly make that happen? And when he looked at it, he said, you know, I think somebody could possibly scale to the scale to the top. And he knew of a Greenpeace activist who had experience, um, you know, scaling trees and, and doing things like that. And so she came and she trained me on how to scale the pole. We found um, some flagpoles we could practice on. A couple times we were practicing on lampposts in the park. Um, just trying to, uh, uh, you know, figure out how to do this. And so for me, once I made the decision that this was what I was going to do, um, my focus really between Tuesday and Saturday was just learning how to do it. You know, I took a that Tuesday I agreed I was going to do it Wednesday. I took a day off just to kind of spend with my family because I couldn't tell my family, you know, what I was about to do. And I knew that this was a potentially life threatening, um, you know, situation um, that I was about to put myself in. Well, tell us about um, that. Well, I, we'll finish that thought. Please finish. Oh, no. I mean, I, I yeah, I mean, I and, and so so then, you know, after that, the focus was simply on this mission of yeah. lowering the flag. I mean, so the goal with the, the flag action in its most immediate form was to lower the flag and then force the state of South Carolina to make the decision to leave the flag down or raise it up. Because, again, at that point, you know, most of the the folks, including the governor, were saying, oh, yes, the flag should come down, but we can't do anything about it for this reason, that reason, that reason. Our argument was, yes, we can take it down. Like, there's no the governor of Alabama went out and cut the poll down right away. No, no discussion about it because it was the right thing to do. So our, our whole goal was let's take the flag down and then force them to make this moral decision of leaving it down or raising it back up. So you did. Tell us about that day, because you talked about the the fears and the concerns you had for your safety going in. I wonder what it's like when you're actually scaling that pole. What's going through your mind? Yeah, well, I mean, so we we knew right away, obviously, that this was something we were highly likely to get arrested for. And, and, you know, before participating in any kind of action like that, those are things you want to take into account. You don't want to go into any kind of nonviolent direct action that you can get arrested for without, you know, being prepared for the full extent, possible extent of the consequences. And so um, we knew I would most likely be arrested. I would probably be the most likely to be arrested. And then, you know, followed by Jimmy, he would probably be arrested. He was the one who stood at the bottom. Um, but we also knew anybody who was, you know, involved in the action could uh, be susceptible to that. Our next greatest concern, or maybe my, my greater concern really was not so much the police, but the possibility of a vigilante coming by, you know, with a gun or something. Um, there was a Klan rally, rally that was held at the Confederate flag um, later that day. And so, you know, we knew that was going to be happening, which was part Part of the reason why um, we did the action so early, uh, um, in, you know, in the morning. But once, you know, once I was there, I, you know, and people have asked me this question before, kind of like, you know, well, what were you thinking of when you were scaling the pole? And really, my my focus was on scaling the pole safely, you know, just step by step in terms of how I had to do that. And then just really being in a time of prayer and reflection, um, just again, because of, of all the different factors, not only, um, you know, the, the fact that this was a very dangerous thing um, that I was doing, but but I had a lot of spiritual motivation behind what I was what I was doing um, as well. I felt very deeply that what happened in Mother Emmanuel on June 15th was a spiritually e- that was a spiritually evil 
act. And and I felt that this action that we were taking really was nonviolence in its in its purest form. I mean, you know, we we, we thought through every aspect of it, including um I mean, well, there, there was a practical consideration, right, about who could who could scale the pole. But uh, once that kind of narrowed it down, who could scale the pole, who could get who could get arrested? Once that narrowed it down to about two people and I was the only, you know, black person who who could do that. Um, you know, we really thought through the symbolism of this and the power of this image of a black woman scaling the pole and really symbolizing this struggle of of the people over systemic racism as represented by the Confederate flag. And we felt that it was important for um, Jimmy as a white man to stand at the bottom and help me over the fence and, you know, stand guard as, as I climbed. And in fact, there was one point where a police supervisor came over. There were two officers who had been at the bottom up to that point and uh, supervisor came over and told them to tase me. And, you know, I'm attached to this metal pole with these metal clasps and, you know, that very well could have electrocuted me. And at that point, James grabbed the pole and he said, if you electrocute her, you'll have to electrocute me, too. And then everybody else who was standing around, you know, videotaping at this point, they started shouting and then um, the police backed off. But that was I mean, that 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 was what we wanted to show. Like this, this is attacking a symbol, this this potent symbol of racism with a new symbol that symbolizes a new way forward. I wonder about your sense now. And I know you're still active in Charlotte and with the recent shooting of Keith Lamont Scott by police and the tensions in that city, how you feel about what's happening in Charlotte, but also what's the way forward in terms of resistance or resilience, if you prefer, um, and whether or not these acts uh, are going to produce results? Um, I would say yes. I think so. I think sometimes the way that we judge results it can be a little skewed because I and I think that we just I think it's a it's a kind of a, an aspect of modern culture, especially that we, you know, we kind of want these instant results. And, um, you know, the Confederate flag action was probably one of the few times where you have a nonviolent direct action that so immediately leads to um, a conclusion, at least around that particular issue. Right. Of just that particular flag coming down. Um, but in, in general, I, I think we have to be careful about trying to, to measure, um, you know, what is success? You could look at the civil rights efforts that were made perhaps in the late 19th century and then question whether they were effective because we were still fighting for civil rights in the 60s. But the, there's no way that we would have been in the position where we were in the 60s to fight the battle in the 60s had it not been for, you know, Ida B. Wells and some of these folks who were fighting before there was a defined civil rights rights movement in that way. Um, and so, so I, I don't think that any effort in the, in the cause of freedom and justice and equality can, can be in vain. Um, I think just the fact that any person makes a decision to stand up and, and speak on behalf of the oppressed or to stand up in, in the fight for, for democracy and in the fight for this dream that people have been fighting for for so long, I don't think that that can ever be, uh, that can ever really be counted as a failure. Do you, do, you um, have, do you have a roadmap? Do you have a sort of a plan in mind? Or how do you see things going forward? And we'll just talk about Charlotte for the moment, because certainly there are still tensions latent in that city. Uh, how do you see things ha- moving forward? And, and do you have a roadmap? Do you have something in mind? 
Yeah, in some way. I mean, I, I have a lot of theories and there are a lot of things that I'm really interested in um, exploring as a community organizer. I think in the most like simplest sense, the solution has to come from the grassroots level, because in my opinion, a lot of the fundamental issues that we are, are facing right now really have to do with an imbalance of power between the haves and the have nots. Right. And that's kind of how it has been for a long time. But but particularly now we have such a so not only do we have the issues of poverty and systemic racism and all of these layers that we're dealing with. But we also have a system that has been so corrupted by money at this point. So it's like if you look back at the 60s, for instance, and you look at the the last major civil rights legislation that was passed in 64 and 65 that has since been done by the uh, undone by the Supreme Court in a lot of ways, that came at a time when we still had a a functioning government at the national level. You had, um, you know, a president in Lyndon Johnson who could really kind of wrangle folks that he needed to wrangle. Um, at some point and sometimes going against folks within his own party in order to pass legislation that was morally correct, but was not necessarily popular with the majority of Americans. You can't really make that happen now. That was my conversation with Bree Newsom, who tore down the Confederate flag from the South Carolina State House in 2015. It's one of the shows I wanted to hear again as I prepare to retire. You can catch more of these conversations from the State of Things every Tuesday and Thursday at noon through the end of the year. Thanks for listening. This is North Carolina Public Radio. It's a broadcast service of the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. I'm Frank Stacio.